0: I do not understand why nothing is done for my people. I have heard talk and talk, but nothing is done. Good words do not last long unless they amount to something. Words do not pay for my dead people. They do not pay for my country, now overrun by white men. They do not protect my father's grave. They do not pay for all my horses and cattle. Good words will not give me back my children. Good words will not make good the promise of your war chief, General Miles. Good words will not give my people good health and stop them from dying. Good words will not get my people a home where they can live in peace and take care of themselves. I am tired of talk that comes to nothing. It makes my heart sick when I remember all the good words and all the broken promises. Chief Joseph, 1879 Who was this man that Buffalo Bill once called the greatest Indian ever produced? Who were the Nez Perce and why'd they go to war? My name's Josh and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Imagine most of central Idaho, kind of south of Coeur d'Alene, all the way to just north of Boise, due west of the Continental Divide. Toss in southeastern Washington state and the northeastern portion of Oregon. And you've got an idea of the roughly 14 million acre stretch of land that the Nez Perce, once upon a time, called home. That name, by the way, Nez Perce, or Nez Percy, was the title bestowed upon the tribe by French-Canadian fur trappers, literally meaning pierced nose. And although I think there is still a debate on whether or not they actually perforated their proboscuses, the name did stick. In their language, they're known as the nimi which simply means the people, or we the people. A people to whom was born thunder rolling down the mountain, or as we all know him best, Chief Joseph. Now, since we're going to be focusing on Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce War, I'm not going to go too super deep on the tribe's history, but I do think it's important that we at least familiarize ourselves with the people, who they were, their culture, all that fun stuff. That said, the Nez Perce were a teepee-dwelling hunter-gatherer people, often crossing the Rocky Mountains into present-day Montana to hunt buffalo. Make no mistake about it though, they had plenty of delicious critters right there in their own backyard. Elk, sheep, deer, salmon, and a whole bunch of camas. Now this camas stuff, scientifically known as comesia quamash, is a type of herb whose bulb the Nez Perce utilizes as a staple to their diet. Now I personally have never tasted it, but from what I've read, the either pit roasted or boiled bulb looks and tastes like extra sweet sweet potatoes. They can also be dried and pounded into sort of a flour used in baking or even as a thickener. And when the Nez Perce weren't hunting or gathering camas, they were making one hell of a name for themselves as horse breeders. As a people, they probably didn't obtain the horse until around the year 1730 or so. But within just two decades, they had already established breeding herds and their own specialized breeding selection practices. If you've ever admired the beautiful Appaloosa breed of horses, and I'm pretty sure you have, you can thank the Nez Perce. Wasn't too long before everybody and their mama were trying to get their hands on Nez Perce ponies. As such, the people were a very viable force in a vast trading network. And just to give you an idea of how quickly goods traveled across the West, when the Lewis and Clark expedition wintered with the Mandan up in North Dakota, one of their party made axes or hatchets that he would trade to the natives. A few months later, when the expedition reached the Nez Perce on the other side of the dang mountains, they were astonished to find that some of these same axes were already there amongst the tribe. Now, being part of such an extensive trade network meant that the people had many allies, such as the Walla Walla, the Yakima, and the Cayuse. Their main enemies, as far as I can tell, resided further south in the Great Basin region, tribes like the Shoshone, the Northern Paiute, and the Bannock people. And, of course, they had previously warred with the Lakota and the Blackfeet as well. In addition to being great hunters, traders, and top-notch horse breeders, the Nez Perce were a warrior people, often conducting raids and counter-raids against said enemies. And believe you me, you're going to hear a whole lot more on this episode when it comes to the Nez Perce and their well-deserved reputation as fierce fighters. And like I said, it was into this tribe, this culture, in the year 1840, that Chief Joseph was born, in the Wallowa Valley of present-day Oregon. And no, his given name at birth was neither Chief nor Joseph, believe it or not. And no, Joseph is not short for Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. I actually couldn't find out uh, if thunder rolling down the mountain was his birth name or not. But to most people, he was just Joseph, young Joseph, while his father, Tukakis, was still alive. The name being one that Tukakis himself was given when he was baptized into the Christian faith. So, you know, you had old Joseph and then you had young Joseph. Now, I mentioned Lewis and Clark earlier. They made contact with the tribe back in 1805 ushering in a whole slew of fur trappers and traders into that area, as well as missionaries. So by the time Joseph was born, the Nez Perce had had some form of direct contact with white people for like over three decades. This contact obviously would make an important impression on the people, especially the contact with the missionaries. Joseph's daddy wasn't their only convert, not by a long shot. And although Joseph was at a very early age, exposed to these new beliefs, he would spend the majority of his formative years growing up in the traditional Nez Perce ways, practicing that old religion. And I am sort of glossing over the influence that these missionaries had on the Nez Perce, uh, but it was significant. If you'd like to learn more, I'd highly recommend the book Chief Joseph and the Fly of the Nez Perce by Kent Nurburne. Great book, and he really delves into how the missionaries ended up living with the people, and unfortunately, how unchristlike these so called men of God were. Still, though, Many Nez Perce would convert to Christianity and, as a byproduct, start living like the missionaries. You know, growing crops, living in log homes, and dressing in the white man's clothes, all that jazz. Joseph, though, like many others, remained living the traditional way. Learning the history and religion of his people from various uncles and elders. Learning how to ride a horse, how to hunt and track, and, of course, how to fight. However, since Joseph was pre-selected to one day become chief himself, he couldn't really partake in the roughhousing that the other boys his age got into. You know, Joseph was expected to somewhat hold himself apart and to be more dignified, even at a young age, and always set an example. As such, if his playmates got into trouble, he was the one who got punished. The idea being that as a leader, he was responsible for the actions of those around him. Just always kind of being held to a higher standard. Long story short, he couldn't participate in y'all mama roast battles or, you know, juvenile games of ball slapping. Now, it is important to point out that while Joseph was being groomed to be a chief, he was not being groomed to be a war chief, like his younger brother Alicott was. Consequently, Joseph grew up to be a very thoughtful and quiet young man, a natural at keeping his eyes open and his mouth shut and not letting his anger overtake his ability to make rational decisions. All great qualities to have. I did find this whole pre-selection as chief thing uh, pretty interesting. A lot of other tribes I've looked at in the past, you know, the Comanche, for example. You got to earn that title. Now, later on in this episode, you're going to see that the Nez Perce had their own way of voting in and voting out leaders. So I guess even though Joseph was pre-selected, it wasn't just a given that he'd one day become chief. He most definitely would have to earn that title, a title that he would end up keeping for the rest of his life. Speaking of chiefs. The Nez Perce, just like all other tribes, was broken up into several bands, each band having their own leader. And these leaders did not speak for members of other bands. That said, Joseph belonged to the Wallowa Band of the Wallowa Valley in northeastern Oregon. Some of the most beautiful, fertile, yet wild and remote land in that whole region. Almost a Garden of Eden for the Wallowa people. The valley offered everything they could possibly need, including plenty of lush grasslands to graze their enormous herds of horses. Unfortunately, this paradise was quickly being encroached on more and more as Joseph grew into manhood. In 1855, there was something called the Treaty of Walla Walla that gave the Nez Perce to Walla Walla Valley. You know, the valley they had already been owning. Cool. Only problem was, a few years later, gold was discovered. You know how that goes. So, of course, a new treaty was enacted in 1863 known to the Nez Perce as the Thief Treaty, aptly named as it would steal about 90% of the people's territory. All because one chief, a guy named Lawyer, agreed to it. Something Joseph himself explained in 1879, saying, quote, Suppose a white man should come to me and say, Joseph, I like your horses and I want to buy them. And I say to him, no, my horses suit me. I will not sell them. Then he goes to my neighbor and says to him, Joseph has some good horses. I want to buy them, but he refuses to sell. My neighbor answers, pay me the money and I will sell you Joseph's horses. The white man returns to me and says, Joseph, I have bought your horses and you must let me have them. If we sold our lands to the government, this is the way they were bought. End quote. Imagine that. The government stealing stuff. Now, some Nez Perce did just go along with this treaty and move to the Lapway Reservation in present-day Idaho. Joseph's father was not one of them. He and his band continued to reside in the Valley Treaty Be Damned. By 1873, then-president Ulysses S. Grant got involved and issued an executive order between Tukakis' band and the white settlers. This, however, would be reversed just two years later when the entire valley was opened up to settlement. And by this time, Joseph's father, Tukakis, knew what was up. When it looked like he was on his way to the other side, he told his son, quote, Never accept any gifts, for they will say you sold something. Take no pay, sign no paper, don't even touch a white man's paper with your hand or they will say you have agreed to what it contains. He'd go on to explain to young Joseph that he'd soon become leader and it would be his duty to protect their land. You must stop your ears whenever you're asked to sign a treaty to sell your home, he explained to his son. Never sell the bones of your father and your mother, and urging that Joseph swore to uphold, saying, quote, A man who would not defend his father's grave is worse than a wild beast. So hopefully you're kind of getting an idea of what was going on. It's a familiar story when it comes to the Western tribes, right? First, just a small trickle of immigrants just passing through, or so they say, and it eventually just becomes this flood a manifest destiny. Within less than half a century, the Nez Perce had almost all of their land taken from them, and by the 1870s, they were reduced to just 750,000 acres. Like I said, some of the Nez Perce, particularly the ones who had already converted to Christianity, were more than happy to settle on the reservation. Others, like Joseph's band, weren't. They had agreed to no treaties and thus did not feel like they were obligated to those terms. The U.S. government clearly did not see things the same way. And before long, there's going to be violence. Now remember, Joseph swore that he'd protect the valley with his life. And when his father passed away in 1871, it was there in the Walla Valley where his family buried him. And with Dukakis' death came Joseph's time to take the head chief position of the Walla Band at just 31 years of age. Okay, so I want to stress something that I'll continue to touch on for the rest of this episode, as I think it's a very overlooked part of Joseph's life. He was no warrior, not really. He wasn't even a celebrated hunter, having only just crossed the mountains once to hunt for buffalo. Furthermore, I found some evidence, and I want to emphasize here that I do not know that what I'm about to say is the truth, but I did see some evidence that some Nez Perce, even in modern times, kind of resent Joseph. I guess the idea is that he seems to get all the glory and also there were some things that he might have done during the Nez Perce war that some people aren't all that proud of. And we will touch on more of this later. One more thing. If any members of the Nez Perce nation are listening to this and there's anything you'd like to correct or just add your perspective on, please don't hesitate to email me. Wildwestextra at gmail.com. I know there's different sides and perspectives out there to all of this. And I'm positive y'all have your own unique stories and takes on this whole thing that maybe aren't all that well known. So get with me. All right. As for Joseph, he was content to lead the band the same way that his father did, devoting his life to the protection of the people and their land. As for the warriors, he looked to his little brother, Alicott, who was a leader among these young firebrands. Now, in 1876, tragedy struck close to home. One of Joseph's BFFs, guy by the name of Wind Blowing, was shot and killed after a group of white men falsely accused him of horse theft. Spoiler alert, he was definitely innocent. And his heinous murder would go unpunished, something that Joseph and the rest of the people did not much appreciate. And they didn't really care how justice was served, so much that it was at least served, you know? Be it at their hands or the hands of the official government. So for the meantime, they stayed peaceful, hoping that the system would work in their favor. Enter in the one-armed Medal of Honor recipient and founder of Howard University, Major General Oliver Otis Howard. Now, General Howard and Chief Joseph had themselves more than a few sit-downs during this time. And not only was the good general very much impressed with Joseph's leadership abilities and just all-around demeanor, but he also saw to it that the murderers of wind-blowing were brought to trial. Kind of. I mean, he at least ordered that they'd be arrested. In order that the white settlers just flat-out ignored. This caused the patients of the Nez Perce to run mighty thin. While they wouldn't make any overtly hostile moves, they did start employing various intimidation tactics. They'd ride around out in the open, stripped and painted up for war, put on very public displays of target practice, you know, just all around scaring the hell out of all those nearby settlers. Even the usually very patient Joseph ended up issuing an ultimatum. The settlers there in his valley had a week, one week, count them, one, two, seven days, to turn the killers over and then leave. If this was not done, then he would unleash his warriors and burn all of their homes to the ground. As you can probably imagine, some of the settlers did leave. They didn't want no part of any war with the Nez Perce. Others armed themselves and got ready. A week passed and the killers weren't turned over. And Joseph, holding true to his word, loosed his warriors, who then slaughtered over 900 settlers there in the Wallowa Valley, raping women, killing babies, Even torturing cute little puppy dogs. Nobody was saved from the bloodthirsty Joseph was all riled up. And no, that is a lie. Actually, Joseph kept his cool once again and did not follow through with that threat. He, more so than anyone else, was willing to do almost anything to avoid putting his people at risk. He successfully kept the young warriors in check until finally some soldiers showed up, basically assuring Joseph that the murderers would be turned over to stand trial, and just asking him to pretty please with sugar on top, keep to his side of the valley as his presence was still scaring the living hell out of all those settlers. Joseph not only agreed to this, but he even had his warriors dump the bullets out of the rifles as a show of peace. This man really did not want war. I cannot stress that enough. General Howard, true to his word, did have the killers tried, but, and this should come as no surprise to anybody, they were found not guilty, based solely on their testimony. So, you know, definitely not a kangaroo court at all. And even then, the Nez Perce didn't go on the warpath. They were pissed, but once again, they were like a bunch of little Fonzies and kept their cool. This patience shown by the Nez Perce is going to be a common thread throughout this entire episode. And it's one of the things that really stuck with me the most when I was researching them. Anyway, so here's the deal. The whites and the Nez Perce couldn't live together indefinitely there in that valley. Not without violence breaking out. It was bound to happen. That's just the reality of the matter. Eventually, another member of the band would get murdered, or some hothead young warrior would lash out, and the entire valley would be covered in blood. And this was what General Howard probably very accurately deduced. The solution? Well, the Nez Perce just need to leave. I mean, what's the big deal? There was a perfectly fine reservation set up in Idaho, and Joseph and his band could just move on over there and live with their Christian cousins, who had already taken up farming and living in houses. Just think about that for a minute. Imagine you and your family have been living in the same house for years, and all of a sudden some neighbors move in, and they're loud, inconsiderate, don't respect your property line, even start parking their cars in your driveway. Finally, one day, one of them comes over and punches you in the face. You call the cops, and not only do they not arrest the guy, But their solution is, well, you know, why don't you just move? And when you say that you don't want to move, that you like living in your house, the cop's like, well, too bad, because you have to move. And if you don't, we'll arrest you. It's the most backwards, illogical sense of justice in the world. And I know I'm oversimplifying things here, but it is pretty much what was happening to the Nez Perce, right? And you didn't even have a situation with them like you had with other tribes as far as the constant raids and kidnappings and stuff like that go. These people were harming literally nobody, just living their best lives. There were negotiations, obviously, but they didn't go so well. I guess General Howard was expecting Joseph and the others to be more agreeable, to make things easy on him. And once again, Joseph was not the only leader negotiating on behalf of the Nez Perce. There was Looking Glass of the Alpawa Band, White Bird of the LaMotta Band, and another guy by the name of Tahuhuzot of the Picanan, or Picanun. All total these 4 leaders represented like somewhere between 6 to 800 people of whom only about 250 or so were fighting aged men and y'all have no idea how hard it is for me to pronounce to zolt just so you know to zolt all right by the way general howard really did not like to zolt two of them got to arguing with mr to To-hoo-hoo-zolt, asking howard who he thinks he is telling him what to do and further damn more that no man can come onto my land and tell me I must do anything. To which Howard was like, oh yeah, well guess what? You will go onto that land that I tell you to go on, or I'll send my soldiers to beat you up. Now I'm paraphrasing of course, but yeah. To Hoolzolt was very clear that he was a man and no other mere man could come and order him around. I am a man, he told General Howard. I have a prick. You will not tell me what to do. And that's a direct quote. Look it up, you don't believe me. And Howard responded by having Tuhulzolt arrested and taken to the guardhouse. Seriously. And it doesn't end there. Not only was he roughed up a little bit, but when he was released, it was not in his own clothes, but a woman's gown that the soldiers had forced on him. Just add an insult to injury. In the words of the Nez Perce, Howard had showed his rifle, meaning that he violated the integrity of the peace talks and just horribly disrespected the other chiefs. Once again, Joseph had to step in and keep the peace. Tohuhulazults. Tohuhulazults. God. Tohuhulazults. I cannot pronounce this guy's name. We're going to call him T. T's warriors wanted blood to avenge the honor of their chief. Sorry, I know it's very disrespectful, but man, y'all, I I uh, I feel like it might even be more disrespectful to keep just butchering this great man's name. So I'm just going to call him T. Okay. T's warriors wanted blood to avenge the honor of their chief. And Whitebird wanted to fight too. You know, so far I've only highlighted that one murder of Joseph's buddy. Whitebird's band wasn't so lucky. They had suffered even more. Rapes, murders, stolen property. One old woman was hacked to death after her dog got into it with a white family's dog. Another member of his band, a half blind Nez Purse, was shot by a miner for the horrible crime of complaining about offense. Hell yeah, they wanted to fight, and I'd be surprised if anybody listening to this at this point would fault them for going to war. Still, though, our very own Chief Joseph was able to keep the angriest of them in check and avoid bloodshed, at least temporarily. And what's more, he swallowed his pride big time and agreed that they, the Nez Perce, should all leave their homeland and move to that reservation in Idaho. Howard had given he and the people 30 days to get the hell out. If not, he would send in the troops. By the way, it's not like the Nez Perce were necessarily scared of Howard's troops. They could handle them and probably even the next little group of soldiers. But I think Joseph knew that they'd never stop coming, that it would be a forever war to keep he and his people in that valley, a war that would cost far too many Nez Perce lives. Okay, fine, so they'd move. It's not the end of the world, right? not like they were being shipped down to Indian Territory or humid-ass Florida like Geronimo was. They'd still be a Nez Perce land, just a tiny portion of it. And maybe they could keep fighting peacefully to one day return to their beloved Wallowa Valley. So they gathered and began making preparations to move. Sort of. I mean, there were still councils being held every day, and there were still some among them who were advocating war, especially the youngins. One of them, a warrior by the name of Walletitz, kind of got called out by some other warriors. It seems his father had been among those previously killed by the white settlers. As per his dad's dying wish, Walletitz did not seek revenge, even though he wanted to. But as he rode through the village on his horse, prancing around and mimicking the motions of war, as young warriors tend to do when there's no war to fight, he accidentally rode over a woman's blanket laying on the ground. Her husband, greatly irritated, asked young Walletitz why he was pretending to fight instead of actually fighting. You such a big bad warrior, okay, why about you go and avenge your father and stop playing make-believe? Walletitz, thoroughly shamed, went and did just that, or at least that was his intention. His father's murderer couldn't be found, so he and a couple other guys instead turned their wrath on another man who was rumored to be cruel to the natives. After shooting him dead, I guess their blood was up because they went on and killed four more settlers. This was obviously no good. Were they provoked? Yes. But by going out and indulging in that bloodlust, these three young warriors just doomed hundreds of non treaty Nez Perce. The die-now cast, other young warriors got in on the action, and a series of raids quickly followed. Killing, to the best of what I could find at least, about 18 additional settlers. Goes without saying that the peace that Joseph and the others had struggled to maintain was now shattered. It also put the people in one hell of a difficult position. They were just getting their heads around the fact that they had to leave and head to the reservation. But now, if they went ahead and left, it would look like they were trying to run or flee justice or something like that. Joseph thought maybe it was better to just stay and explain to General Howard what had happened or at very least wait and see what the soldiers were going to do. Other leaders disagreed, saying that as far as the whites were concerned, when one Indian committed a crime, they were all guilty. Doesn't matter if it was a different band or even a different damn tribe. An Indian was an Indian was an Indian. By the way, I forgot to mention that Joseph was not in the village when all this violence erupted. He found out after the fact. And he was able to successfully calm everybody down enough and convince them to at least stay where they were for the night. You know, we'll assess everything with new eyes in the morning and make our decision. That morning, however, a sniper's bullet ripped through the camp, striking a lodge. Hint taken. Joseph and the others would break camp and head east. Now, these killings took place on June 13th and 14th of 1877, when the people were all gathered together on a canvas prairie near Tolo Lake in present-day Idaho County, Idaho. And when General Howard received word of the killings, the war was effectively on. There would be no parlays or sit-downs to figure out what the hell happened and how to stop it from escalating further. If they wanted the Nez Perce gone, well, now they had all the excuse they needed. The bands headed east with Joseph included those led by the chiefs I mentioned earlier, plus some members of the Pallus tribe, minus Chief Looking Glass and the 70 or so members of his band. They decided they were just going to stay put and see which way the wind blowed. Of those fleeing, however, Joseph was the youngest of all the leaders. He was also the friendliest to the whites, at least he had been in the past. That, coupled with his hesitation to leave, caused some to doubt his motives. His counsel was still valued, but he was no longer 100% trusted. But Josh, how could this be? I'm about to explain. A big misconception when it comes to Chief Joseph, one that I myself believed for years, is that not only was Chief Joseph some sort of tactical genius, the Red Napoleon as the whites began calling him, but that he was also the supreme leader of all these fleeing Nez Perce who were involved in the Nez Perce War. And that is most definitely not the case. Joseph was a leader, but not the leader. Hell, he wasn't even at the top of the list. And as I touched on earlier, he wasn't no war leader either. Much like Tom Hagen from The Godfather, he might not have even had the makings of a wartime consigliere. Now, you and me aren't the only ones that thought Joseph was the top dog. Everyone, even at the time when this war was still raging, assumed the same thing. Why? Well, because of General Howard, that's why. In their previous sit-downs, Joseph had been so level-headed, so intelligent and well-spoken, that Howard just kind of assumed that he spoke for all the others. And once the great exodus began and they started playing tag with the U.S. Army, Howard would refer to the Nez Perce, via dispatch or telegraph, as Joseph's Nez Perce. Or he would sometimes just refer to all of them as just Joseph. You know, Joseph, moving 13 miles east, just clashed with Joseph in such and such valley. The newspapers quickly picked up on this and repeated it to the public at large. Thus, Chief Joseph came to represent the Nez Perce War without his or any other Nez Perce knowledge. Just as the war was kicking off. Don't worry if you're getting confused. We will touch on all of this more as the episode progresses. Now, meanwhile, General Howard, underestimating the Nez Perce, sent out a force of just 100 men under a Captain Perry. On June 17th, just four short days after young Wallatit set out to avenge his daddy, the soldiers encountered six Nez Perce warriors who approached them with a white flag. Okay, so far off to a good start. And then, boom, some hothead named Ad Chapman, more on him later too, decided to open up fire. Obviously, the six Nez Perce quickly went for reinforcements. Those who could, about 70 warriors in all, hopped up on their preferred war ponies and set out for the soldiers. And I say those that could because many of the warriors who had just recently been engaged in all those raids had spent the night drinking all that whiskey that they stole. And those poor soldiers, man, they just didn't have a chance. Like I said, they were poorly trained, definite leadership problem out there, and they were worn the hell out from long hours in the saddle. To make matters worse, their weapons began jamming as soon as the fighting started. And they just flat out got ran over. Those who weren't instantly killed panicked and began to retreat. And that's not something that I would advise you do if you ever find yourself ambushed by warriors such as the Nez Perce. Warriors who were raised in the saddle and who were experts at fighting from the backs of their horses. They could prepare an arrow or load a rifle while galloping at full speed. Could roll off their mounts, fire a shot, and then remount in a single fluid motion. And they had spent enough time around the white soldiers to know their tactics. They knew you had to shoot the officers and buglers first, causing chaos in the ranks. By the time the now-known-as Battle of Whitebird Canyon was over, an astonishing 33 soldiers were dead, the Nez Perce only suffering a few injuries. The warriors were also able to supplement their arsenal, taking hundreds of rounds of ammo, several pistols, and like 60-something carbine rifles off the soldiers. Not a bad day's work. And obviously a morale-crushing defeat for the U.S. military. They had the advantage not only in numbers, but weaponry as well, only to be quickly defeated by a, in their minds, primitive group of hunter-gatherers. Now, as far as I'm aware, Joseph was not a participant in this battle, in any way, shape, or form. And if he did participate, he was not in charge. That honor fell to his little brother Alicott and Chief Whitebird. Meanwhile, remember old Looking Glass, who decided to stay put instead of fleeing with all the other Nez Perce? Well, that soon changed. On July 1st, 1877, a detachment of about 60 or so troops under a Captain Whipple showed up at his village outside of present-day Kuskia, Idaho. A random shot was fired, and the village was ripped apart by Gatling guns. Only a few Nez Perce were killed, but the village was destroyed. And what's more, Looking Glass, who was willing to sit things out, was now leading his people to join up with Joseph and all the others, who by this point had already crossed the Salmon River. Now that officer who attacked Looking Glass's village, Captain Stephen Whipple, didn't just call it a good day's work and go home. He and his men pressed on hard, and by July 4th, along with some civilian scouts, they were dug in some 70-odd miles down the trail at the Norton Ranch, near present-day Cottonwood, Idaho. Two of the captain's civilian scouts had the misfortune to stumble upon the fleeing Nez Perce. One was killed and the other escaped, reporting the tribe's location. Whipple then sent out Lieutenant Raines, with ten soldiers and two civilians to investigate. Big mistake, as they were all killed down to the last man. Once again, the army suffers a horrible loss. Whipple was then reinforced by Captain Perry, the guy who was in charge of the ill-fated Battle of Whitebird Canyon, and twenty or so of his troops. Perry, outranking Whipple, assumed command with, I can only imagine, the ferocity of the Nez Perce, still fresh on his mind. The next day, July 5th, the entirety of the Nez Perce passed by the soldiers, as just a few warriors kept them occupied by sporadic sniper fire. Now, 17 brave civilians did try to help, attempting to break through the Nez Perce line and join up with the soldiers. This resulted in the first Nez Perce casualty of war, an elderly man. This also saw three of the volunteers killed as well. Continuing to push east, the Nez Perce finally stopped to rest at Clearwater Creek, And that's where they were finally joined by Looking Glass and his people. And while we now know that the Nez Perce would eventually try to make it to Canada, at this point, they themselves didn't even know that. They weren't quite sure where they were going. It was all still very much up in the air. Remember, originally, they were planning on going to that reservation at Lapway there in Idaho, at least until those warriors began raising hair. Canada was an option, sure, but it wasn't one that was being taken all that seriously just yet. Another very real option, one proposed by Joseph... Was just to stop where they were and surrender. This, however, was soon squashed when Looking Glass showed up and shared the news about what had happened in his peaceful village. Of its destruction, he said, quote, Two days ago, my camp was attacked by the soldiers. I tried to surrender in every way I could. My horses, lodges, and everything I had were taken away from me. Now, my people, as long as I live, I will never make peace with the Americans. I am ready for war. End quote. And I got to remember that line the next time I called T-Mobile to complain about my shoddy cell signal. So yeah, the Nez Perce wouldn't just stay put and try to reason with the soldiers. Seems to them that the best option available was to try to link up with their buddies, the Flathead or the Crow, who, just like the Nez Perce, had always maintained friendly relations with the Whites. And here's the real crazy thing. And I mean crazy in the sense that it's so obviously wrong when we look back at things with our modern eyes. But the Nez Perce had this idea that if they could just make it to Montana, Everything would be all hunky-dory. Remember, Montana Territory was where they went every year to hunt buffalo, and they got along just fine with the Montana white people. It was them Oregon and Idaho whites that they were beefing with. They didn't yet grasp that it was one huge tribe, that these white people all belonged to the same band, you know, the United States government. Furthermore, they, and you see this with a lot of other Native American tribes as well, did not yet truly understand the way that the whites fought you know, in prolonged campaigns and wars and stuff like that. When the Nez Perce went to war, it meant they went on a few raids. You know, maybe take some scalps, steal some horses, then you return home. They certainly never pursued their enemies to the point of extermination or just total dominance. The U.S. military, on the other hand, did and would. And they would have ample motivation to do so. Not only had they just suffered two major defeats at the hands of the Nez Perce, but they also had to protect the settlers. As the tribe pushed east, those young warriors were still out for blood and would burn down about 30 or so ranches and farms along the way. It was a weird kind of thing going on. The Nez Perce chiefs and elders didn't have the sort of authority of, let's say, a military officer. They couldn't just go around giving orders. As a Nez Perce warrior, you were about as free as anyone who ever walked on God's green earth. There were rules in which you abided, you know, rules that all civilizations adhere to in one way or the other, just to avoid anarchy and keep the cohesiveness of everything, but nobody just ordered you around. You felt like making war, you went out and made war. And if you could convince some of your buddies to go with you, well, y'all had yourselves a little war party. The chiefs, guys like Joseph, could only counsel, implore, try to talk them out of it. Alright, so moving forward. It was July 7th when Looking Glass linked up with the Nez Perce, bringing their total number of fleeing people up to around 800 with, like I said earlier, about, I don't know, 250 or so fighting men. These numbers, by the way, do change depending on the sources that you read, so just please double-check all of this for yourself. And unbeknownst to the Nez Perce, General Howard was fast on their trail with a force of almost 500 men. And I say unbeknownst because they should've been knowing. Okay, Nez Perce? They had just very recently had a dust-up with a few of Howard's scouts, and instead of breaking camp and moving on, they had stayed put. Why? Well, first of all, they were still kind of riding high on their previous victories. Secondly, they weren't expecting Howard to show up from the direction that he showed up, nor were they expecting him to show up as soon as he did. Either way, honestly, there's really no excuse here. They got complacent. And as we all know, complacency kills. But once again, of course, this is me playing armchair general. Fact of the matter is, I wouldn't be able to keep up with your average Nez per 7-year-old back in those days. Okay, so enough with the speculation. General Howard had his men on a bluff overlooking the Nez Perce by July 11th. His element of surprise, however, was soon lost when some of his men got spotted. The people quickly rallied and went on the offense, rushing up towards the soldiers and throwing together a little makeshift sort of stone fort from which they stopped the general's troops dead-ass cold. Instead of attacking the village, Howard's men would now spend the rest of the day in a stalemate, cut off from fresh water and fighting those advanced warriors. And even though the general had howitzers and Gatlin guns, they couldn't do a whole lot of damage from his vantage point, other than just, you know, exploding up in the air. By the way, guess who was up there at that little makeshift stone fort? Old Mr. T himself, to whoo old, The guy Howard had arrested and dressed in a gown. The old warrior was in his mid-50s and out there fighting at the front, showing Howard that he did indeed have a prick. Now for the time being, even though the Nez Perce were way outnumbered and outgunned, they had the advantage from their fortified positions, especially considering that the army was cut off from water and all that type of stuff, whereas the Nez Perce could be resupplied with food and water from their village. This advantage, however, was one that the Nez Perce did not capitalize on. Instead, they began bickering amongst themselves. I guess they were used to fighting in the open and on horseback, as opposed to this type of combat on foot and behind rocks. Some of them felt like it was a waste of time, when they could be back there getting the village ready to retreat. Other warriors thought that those who had doubts were just scaredy-cats. In the end, many of the warriors simply went back to camp, leaving those left with not enough manpower to stop Howard from advancing come morning. This caused the already-rushed Nez Perce to sort of panic and turn their retreat into a hasty, sloppy affair, despite Joseph's rally cries. As the army advanced, the people scattered, making their way toward the river. Supplies and camp goods left behind. During all this chaos, this rush to get to safety... One of the last warriors who kept on fighting the soldiers, a young guy named Yellow Wolf, was making good his escape down a ravine when he heard the din of loud explosions and rifle shots, a woman crying. Upon inspection, he recognized the damsel in distress. It was none other than Joseph's wife, Springtime. And she was carrying the couple's infant daughter, while at the same time trying to control her skittish horse. Yellow Wolf quickly came to her aid and took the baby long enough for Springtime to properly mount her horse. And then the pair were able to ride to safety and join up with the others. Which begs the question, where was Chief Joseph? Well, he was far, far ahead. Attempted to lead and control the disorganized retreat. Okay, fair enough. That was kind of his job, right? Matter of fact, as you'll see, the further on we go, this is where Joseph excelled. Organizing retreats, organizing the camp, all that good stuff. That said, his apparent abandoning of his wife and child in the face of fierce fighting did not go unnoticed by her or by the others. I certainly won't pretend to know exactly what happened. All we know is that Joseph was leading the retreat and that his wife and baby were left behind. Nobody will ever know what was going on through his mind at this time or what his thought process was like. You know, was this just an extreme example of him putting his tribe, his people, above all else? Or did he simply already believe that his wife and child were safe? I got no idea, and I'm definitely not going to sit here and pass judgment. I'll tell you what, though. I personally cannot help but think of a certain scene from that movie 28 weeks later. If you haven't seen it, spoiler alert. It's a zombie movie, and there's this group of survivors holed up in a farmhouse, you know, just hiding from the zombies. Well, one day they break in, and it's total chaos. This guy, his wife, and a young child are running up the stairs trying to get away, and they hide in a bedroom. But it's no use. You know, the zombies just come flooding in. Now, during all this, the woman and the kid get separated from the husband. She's yelling out his name, but he can't get to her because there's too many damn zombies. So he gives her this sorry kind of look and bolts to the next room and hops out the window. The whole time, she's just steady screaming his name as he's making a mad dash to safety. And then he takes one look back and sees her up there, looking out the window, screaming. And they make eye contact. And that look that she gives him. woo. That look is all I could think about when I read the story of Chief Joseph's wife. Got to imagine that things were a little bit tense around the campfire that night. But that's just me, you know, I don't know that there was any such drama. I do know, however, that other Nez Perce did take notice of this happening. Okay, so that battle I just described is now known as the Battle of the Clearwater. All total 15 soldiers and two civilian volunteers lost their lives, with about 26 wounded. The Nez Perce only lost four dead and six wounded, But their material loss was huge, and their hurried retreat, a great deal of their supplies were left behind, stuff like lodges, food, even horses, all lost to the soldiers who busied themselves in ransacking the goods. Almost as troubling to the Nez Perce as their loss of life and much-needed supplies was the revelation that serving among General Howard's men were some of their very own relatives, treating Nez Perce from the reservation, working as scouts against their own people. This, it seemed to them, was the ultimate betrayal. It also serves as the backdrop to a story that I found extremely interesting. One of these treaty scouts got wind that his father, who was fighting on the other side, was just killed. Overcome with grief and rage, this reservation Nez Perce threw off his blue army coat and raced across the battlefield, dodging bullets from both camps till he made it to the other side. Once there, he rallied the non-treaty Nez Perce and led a charge against the same soldiers who he had just been fighting for just minutes earlier. And the same thing was kind of happening in the opposite direction as well. Some of those among the fleeing Nez Perce were very uncomfortable with all the killings of settlers and the burning down of ranches and all that. They didn't want to fight and hell, some of them were members of the treaty bands that just found themselves at the wrong place at the wrong time. I think something like 35 Nez Perce, including 15 fighting men, soon took the opportunity to surrender themselves to Howard. Anyway, the Nez Perce continued to push east, with Howard quick on their trail, both sides trying to outwit the other, at a place called the Wyatt Prairie. This is still in present-day Idaho, by the way, just east of the Nez Perce reservation near the town of Wyap. I hope I'm pronouncing that word right, too. Okay, so long story short, the Nez Perce attempted to lure General Howard and his soldiers into an ambush but the old officer was too savvy to fall for it. Instead, he tried a ruse of his own, pulling out and headed north, hoping that the Nez Perce would think he was retreating, when in actuality, he was just circling around and coming at them from a different direction. Ah, but the wily Nez Perce had another stratagem to employ. Seeing through Howard's feint, they sent word through some of the treaty Indians that Joseph and his band wanted to surrender. Welcome news to General Howard, who quickly turned and headed back to accept Mr. Joseph's concession. However, there was no Chief Joseph, just one lone Nez Perce warrior on the other side of the river shouting out that he was a messenger and that Joseph, although being forced by the other chiefs to continue the flight, did still want to surrender. Only thing was, he wanted to negotiate his terms. Now, Howard was excited, but would not negotiate anything beyond a total and absolute surrender. There was more of a back and forth, and then finally that warrior fired off his rifle, turned his back to General Howard, and slapped his ass. And then he rode off. And no, I'm not kidding. Meanwhile, all the non treaty Nez Perce were happily riding away as well, even while General Howard waited yet another day just in case Joseph really did want to surrender. Okay, so having bought some time, the people had some serious decisions to make. Ever since Looking Glass had hooked up with the fleeing Nez Perce, he had assumed a leadership role. And now he was pushing for the people to cross over the mountains into Buffalo country, a land that he had spent considerable time in. Plus, that's where their friends the Flathead were, as were all the friendly white people they knew. According to Looking Glass, them Montana white people would know that the Nez Perce were peaceful. And besides the Flathead, you also had the aforementioned Crow, also good friends. Surely they could live in peace there among one of these tribes, until things settled down at home. And if the army showed up, the Crow or the Flathead would help them drive the soldiers away. A lot of the respected warriors also agreed with this idea. Only Joseph wasn't so sure. and his band weren't Buffalo country people. What are we fighting for? He asked. Is it our lives or our land? He almost felt like it was better to send the women and children into the mountains and then head back to his own country with his warriors and die fighting for the land of his father and his father's father. If it was honor they wanted, that's how you achieve it. Not by running or drinking whiskey and killing innocent people. If they fled across the mountains, they'd be a people without a home. Still, Joseph was in the minority. Finally, another vote was taken where Looking Glass was chosen as the top dog, the leader of all nearly 800 people headed east. They then headed out for the Lolo Trail with Joseph's band in the very rear. His voice, which had never been paid attention to in matters of war, barely being listened to at all. The Lolo Pass, by the way, reaches an elevation of over 5,200 feet. It's full of dangerous steep drop-offs, fallen trees, and treacherous narrow mud-logged trails. Yet the Nez Perce navigated it with relative ease, hundreds of them, with a couple thousand horses and who knows how many dogs. And they made it. Of course they did. Interestingly enough, this is the same pass that Lewis and Clark were guided through shortly before they first made contact with the Nez Perce, who took them in and cared for them and gave them food. Even more interesting, and this I cannot verify, it is just a rumor, But Captain Clark may have possibly left a little something behind with the Nez Perce back in 1806. Among the fleeing non-treaties was an old man in his 70s named Daytime Smoker, or son of Daytime Smoker. Story goes that he was the son of Captain Clark and a Nez Perce lady who were married Indian style. The wife accompanied the expedition to the West Coast and then back to her tribe, where on the return trip, she was with child. Now, this baby was supposedly born with a tint of red in his hair, just like Clark had, and with light eyes. And what's more, his own descendants go by the last name Clark. It's no secret that the men of the expedition had many sexual dalliances with Native women during the entire journey. And most of these relations are more akin to prostitution than anything else. These men would trade with beads and other such items for a quick roll in the hay. And there's no indication in either of the captain's journals that they themselves ever partook, but I find that very hard to believe. Neither of these men had wives back home, and they were both young and in their prime. Of course they partook, all right? And it's no wonder they wouldn't write about it. I mean, these guys were respectable men, officer and gentleman types. What happened on the trail stayed on the trail, if you know what I mean. And I think you do know what I mean. So yeah, there's a good chance that Captain Clark's own son was a member of these fleeing Nez Perce, a link to their first contact with the white man. When the people emerged into Montana on July 25th, 1877, they camped at a place called Lolo Hot Springs for pushing on. Little did they know that the army was waiting for them up ahead. Kind of. Now, this is just one of those many interesting incidents that occurred during the war that didn't really amount to much, but that I cannot not talk about. Because, well, it's interesting. To me at least. This is also why this damn episode is going to be so long. Okay, so just over two dozen troops under a Captain Charles Ron were tasked with stopping the Nez Perce from entering into the Bitterroot Valley. Twenty five men against at least two hundred some warriors. Sure, Captain Ron had fifty civilian scouts who were probably better armed than his own troops, but still they were outnumbered more than two to one. Ron was a determined man, though. He hastily put up a fort now known as Fort Fizzle and met with old Looking Glass himself. The chief was actually nice enough to let loose some young civilians that the warriors had captured and told the captain that he meant to pass by without any violence, but pass he would. To Ron's credit, although way outnumbered, he held fast, told Looking Glass he and his Nez purse were to lay down their arms, and he would see them do just that by force if necessary. Dang, man. I don't know anything about this Ron guy other than this, but I was impressed, so I googled him. Unfortunately, I couldn't find out a whole bunch. Uh looks like the Pennsylvania-born Charles Coatsworth Ron was either 39 or 40 when he met with Looking Glass and would later go on to be promoted to major where he commanded the all-black 24th Infantry down in Texas. Looks like there's at least one book on Amazon about the guy titled Captain Charles Ron and the Frontier Infantry in Montana. Might have to add that baby to the old wish list. I'm sure there's probably some good stuff in there. Anyway, Ron soon got reinforcements. A mix of civilians and friendly flathead warriors, and hell, even the dang governor of Montana showed up. Wasn't too long before Ron was in command of 216 men, for a very short amount of time. Once the captain explained that there was almost certainly going to be a fight with the Nez Perce, most of them, including the very brave governor, decided to haul ass. Leaving Ron with a force of less than 100. But, in the words of Linkin Park, in the end, it didn't even matter. There would be no Montana Alamo. The Nez Perce, tired of asking for permission, simply sent a few warriors to keep Captain Ron and his men busy and pinned down, while the entire tribe, every man, woman, and child, simply rode on by. And if you doubt Looking Glass's promise that he just wanted to pass in peace, check out what happened next. Another group of soldiers, 50 of them, accidentally stumbled into the Nez Perce camp. They were promptly captured and then tortured to death, slowly. No, I'm joking. Looking Glass actually let him go. He meant what he said. He didn't want any violence. Just wanted to pass on into the valley and get some supplies for his people. And while doing so, he tried his damnedest to keep these young warriors in check. First, though, the Nez Perce would get dealt some bad news. Remember, they were kind of counting on their old friends the Flathead, a hope that was soon nipped in the bud. The Flathead said that they were getting along just fine with their white neighbors and they didn't need to exile Nez Perce messing things up. They did give their word, though, that as long as the Nez Perce behaved themselves, they'd have no problem from them. Alright, that sucks, but at least the Flathead weren't just openly fighting them. Now, before we go any further, I want to make a little bit of a disclaimer. During this episode, I'm going to be tossing around a lot of various dates and numbers and locations. If you haven't already noticed, I'm going to mispronounce many of them. Please double-check all of these things, and don't be too disappointed if I got a few mix-ups. I did catch a few mistakes when I was double-checking my notes, so it's always possible that some of them slipped past me. There's a lot of information I'm trying to convey here in just a short period of time. Alright, with that out of the way, let's continue. Next up, the Nez Perce moved on down the trail to the town of Stevensville, about 30 miles south of Missoula, Montana. And as far as they were concerned, they were just going to make a quick stop and buy some groceries. They had both gold and greenbacks to pay their way. The only problem was the good citizens of Stevensville had heard that they was coming. And they were well aware of the destruction that the Nez Perce had left in their wake back in Idaho. As such, the town people had barricaded themselves in their homes. Hell, they had been forded up inside for the past three weeks. Still, though, money talks. And remember what I said about the Nez Perce having good relations with the people of Montana in the past. They had been here before, on the way to search for Buffalo. And they had traded with these very merchants during those times. Due to these past transactions, some of the braver tradesmen took a chance and came out in the open, see if they could do a little business with Chief Looking Glass and the people. Once again, Looking Glass promised peace, assured the people of Stevensville that there would be no stealing or killing, and that his people would pay fairly. However, should you refuse to sell us what we need, we will take it. We won't leave our women and children hungry. Flour, sugar, coffee, tobacco, some bullets and cloth, that's basically all they were after. And the tradesmen that came forth, agreed. Agreed to everything but the bullets, though. Said they couldn't go there. Nor would they trade whiskey. Matter of fact, one of them, who attempted to sneak a little whiskey to the Nez Purse, was almost hung on the spot by his own people. The only thing that saved his neck was the merchants were afraid that that action would needlessly excite the Nez Purse. An old looking glass was keeping the peace among his people as well. He sat there on a horse in the middle of Main Street, whip in hand, ready to strike any warrior who acted a damn fool. One young man insulted a white woman and was immediately sent back to camp. When it was all said and done, it was a peaceful, if not very tense, day. And the Nez Perce duly provisioned, moved on, at a more leisurely pace. Only about 12-15 miles a day, not wanting to push their old or sick too hard, and just giving the horses time to graze. And this was mostly a peaceful time. There were a few minor break-ins and some cattle got killed, but Looking Glass did his best to keep the hotheads in check and make things right. At one point, some Nez Perce broke into an empty cabin and ransacked it, making off of flour and coffee. When the old chief found out, he made those warriors return and leave seven horses in payment. Not only that, but he had the Nez Perce brand the horses with the settlers' own branding iron so there'd be no misunderstandings. Now, I don't know about you, man, but for me, it appears that this looking-glass guy is one hell of a good leader. So far. I mean, I guess nobody's perfect, right? In his case, against the urgings of some of the other chiefs, he refused to quicken the pace. He felt like now that they had finally arrived onto the great buffalo plains, that the danger was behind them. And when they finally, on August 7th, reached the area they called the place of the brown squirrels, a traditional stopping off point when hunting for buffalo, they set up camp. Nowadays, this area is known as Big Hole, and it's just over 100 miles or so south of Missoula. And it was a great area, you know, it was a perfect place with enough graze and water for all the people and animals, abundant game for food. And best of all, no white settlements. Only thing was, they hadn't simply left all of their problems behind them. General Howard had finally got his men over the Lolo Pass. And thanks to reinforcements, his numbers were steadily growing. A Colonel John Gibbon, Little Bighorn fame, was closing in ranks as well with his troops. None of this seemed to concern the Nez Perce there at Big Hole, though. They had simply set up camp and busied themselves with normal camp chores. In addition to erecting a tent for the sick, as well as another one that would serve as a maternity lodge. Women made pits for drying canvas, while others took to making lodge poles to replace those left behind in Idaho. Still others were repairing clothing as the children and the old rested and the men set out to hunt for game. Normal stuff. And this, once again, is where Chief Joseph really shined. This setting up camp and ensuring that everything went smoothly was what he was firmly in charge of. Just the organization and the general well-being of the camp. You know, all the little stuff that we don't even think about, like making sure the horses are set out to graze where there's adequate feed and water. Speaking of horses, while they still had a whole bunch, remember, they had lost more than a few back there in Idaho. Due to this, some of the warriors didn't have decent mounts. And some of them, mostly the young warriors, wanted to go backtrack and make sure they weren't being followed. Maybe do a little bit of raiding while they were at it, you feel? But to do so, they needed fresh mounts. Looking Glass and them other chiefs rebuffed them, though telling them to go ahead and backtrack, but too bad, so sad, you young trifling asses ain't using our horses. Now, probably the reasoning behind this was the chiefs were justifiably worried that the youngsters would go off and make trouble. Unfortunately, this turned out to be a tragic mistake. Like I said, the army was coming, slow but sure. And there's no force on this earth that I'm aware of that can stop the by-God United States Army when they set their minds to do something. Remember Colonel Gibbon? Well, he was bearing down fast with 161 soldiers. 45 civilian volunteers, and one lonely howitzer gun. By the way, speaking of civilian volunteers, this episode of Wild West Extravaganza is brought to you by me. As such, what better time than now to plug my own podcast? Don't worry, it does relate to the material at hand. A while back, I did a two part series on the great frontiersman, Liver Eaton Johnson, the guy that the Robber Redford movie, Jeremiah Johnson, is very loosely based on. Well, Johnson was a scout for the army there in Montana during this Nez Perce war. Unfortunately, I am not sure which battles he was present for, but I do talk some about the Nez Perce on those episodes, uh, episodes number 42 and 43. So please, if you haven't already, go give them a listen. All right, back to Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce. On August 8th, just one day after the people set up camp, one of Gibbon's lieutenants discovered their location. The colonel then marched his troops and reached the camp by dawn on the morning of the night. His orders were to fight. No prisoners. No negotiations. Just fight and fight hard. They approached the Nez Perce camp silently. Something they'd never have been able to do had there been adequate sentries. Hell, they probably wouldn't have even gotten that close had those young warriors been allowed to backtrack. But there I go again, right? Looking at things from my vantage point. I guess hindsight is twenty twenty, right? The soldiers struck quickly, first killing an old man who came out to inspect his horses. Before crossing the river and charging into camp, firing into lodges as the Nez Perce still slept. What well, followed next was just the pure chaos and confusion that comes from such an attack. You know, the deafening sound of gunfire and screams, dogs howling and horses squealing as they trample all over everything, women and children running for safety, men running in all directions either for their weapons or just trying to save themselves as the soldiers fired indiscriminately. And then the smell of burning flesh. The troopers had lit some teepees on fire. Teepees with Nez Perce still inside of them. It goes without saying that the Nez soon rallied and began fighting back, fiercely. After all, they had no choice. You know, this was their loved ones getting slaughtered, and they fought back with whatever they could find. Those who didn't have time to grab their rifles took on the soldiers with rocks, sticks, even their own bare hands. Some of them jumped up on soldiers' backs to take them down. One old warrior cried out, Since the world was made, brave men fight for their women and children. Are we going to run to the mountains and let the whites kill our women and children before our eyes? It is better that we should die fighting. Even Chief Looking Glass raised his voice, telling the young warriors that these soldiers weren't asleep, like those settlers they had killed back in Idaho. You want to fight? Well, now's your chance. As for those soldiers, well, unfortunately, war is hell. Some accounts say that some of them were aiming low, purposely to kill children, that they fired into the maternity and sick lodges. Remember old wallet tits? The young warrior who was kind of responsible for this entire mess? Well, he fought well. Fought like the warrior that he always wanted to be. Took up a position behind a log, holding off soldiers until finally, he died well. His very pregnant wife then took over, grabbing his rifle and continuing the fight until she too was cut down. And that's what I call ride or die. While well, hits wasn't alone either, some of the best warriors died there that day at the big hole. Fighting to protect the people. Dying for their kin dying, killing men, a most honorable sin, as the great culture wall once sang. And as I touched on, it wasn't just warriors dying, women too, and children. Lots of sad stories during this fight, like that of a little infant found shot through the arm, appendage just barely hanging by a thread as it suckled at its dead mother. So you may be wondering, what was Joseph doing during all this fighting? Well, we don't know for sure, but at one point he was huddled near a creek bank, cradling his infant daughter in his arms and yelling out that he didn't have a gun to defend himself with. You know, like many of the Nez Perce men, he was away from his weapons when the fighting began. Now, I want to make a few things clear. I am not pointing this out in an attempt to make light or even pass judgment on Joseph. But I do feel like it's worth mentioning because, once again, and despite popular belief, he was never known among the Nez Perce as a skilled warrior. His skill lay elsewhere, like in what he did next after presumably getting his baby to safety. First, he gathered up all the young boys and rushed them across the river to protect the horses. For without horses, the people would surely be lost. Next, as the fighting slowed down, then finally died. The whole battle just lasted 20 minutes, by the way. Joseph walked among the injured and dying, comforting them and consoling the families of the dead. Preparing the camp to move ASAP and seeing to the old people who could no longer travel. He was also in charge of placing now-orphaned children, with other families, as well as conducting a death count. Not quite as glamorous as being a war chief, but pretty damn essential duties, I would say. That death count, by the way, came out to about 90 Nez Perce, 50 of whom were women and children. A devastating blow to the people. Those who were wounded but still travel were placed on travoys, others tied to horses. One of the injured tied to horses was Joseph's own wife. As for the army, they lost 31 soldiers dead and 38 wounded. I guess on paper it was a U.S. victory, but what a steep price to pay, man. And for what? They hurt the Nez Perce, but they didn't bring him to heel or end the war. The people were hard-pressed but not crushed, struck down but not destroyed. Now somewhere during this fight, thanks to the ferocity of the Nez Perce and thanks to the young warriors setting fires, attempting to rout the army, Gibbon himself called a retreat, falsely believing that the natives outnumbered him. In his haste, he and the soldiers left behind a whole bunch of ammo, along with that howitzer, which the Nez Perce destroyed. And looking glass, well, he had some answering to do. The Nez Perce wanted to know why he didn't listen when they implored him to pick up the pace. Why had he insisted they travel so slowly and allow the soldiers to catch up with them? Furthermore, why hadn't he seen two of the scouts were sent out to backtrack or cover their flanks? Why, why, why? Needless to say, he was no longer head chief. People voted in another Nez Perce by the name of Poker Joe. Now, Poker Joe's an interesting character. He had just joined up with the fleeing Nez Perce about 10 or 11 days prior. A mixed breed, half Nez Perce and half French Canadian, Poker Joe's birth name was Joe Hell. But he also answered to Nez Perce Joe or Little Tobacco. And just as his name suggests, he was rumored to be one hell of a poker player. What's more, he knew the white people pretty good, and Montana even better and he wasn't afraid to push the people at a more hurried pace, especially after this most recent disaster. After some discussion, it was decided that they'd keep moving toward Crow Country. Start early and ride well into late evening, sometimes not even stopping until after dark. And you best believe there were now Buku's scouts in all directions. No more would they allow the soldiers to come upon them unawares. And the young high-head warriors the Looking Glass held in check were no longer so easily controlled. First of all, they now felt justified. This was a damn war, and they were warriors. Hell with talking peace. Each morning, they'd fan out in raiding parties. At one ranch, they killed four white men. At another, they stole a hundred horses. Each raid was the same. They attacked whoever they could find, not caring if they were friend or foe. And of course, they found plenty of the white man's whiskey to keep them motivated. By August 18th, the Nez Perce were camped at a place called Camas Meadows, just east of present-day Spencer, Idaho. Yes, they were back in Idaho. Now, if you look at a map of the route taken by the Nez Perce, they crossed the divide from present-day Idaho into Montana like 25 days before. They then traveled south, almost right along the Montana-Idaho border, through what I believe is known as the Bitterroot Valley. I'm sure you mountain folk will correct me if I'm wrong, before once again crossing back into Idaho, not far from the present-day town of Ledor, or They'd soon turn east and continue to the Camas Meadows, about 80 or so miles west of present day Wyoming. And to give you an idea of how close the army was, the very next day, General Howard and his over 300 men, including Treaty Nez Perce scouts, camped at the exact same spot there at Camas Meadows. Hot on that damn trail. So, just to be neighborly, the Nez Perce decided to pay the soldiers a visit. They raided Howard's camp at about 4 a.m. on August 20th, not to fight but to make off with some horses. And while they didn't get a whole bunch of horses, they did take about 150 of Howard's mules, so you know that's some. However, General Howard didn't get to be a general by putting up with no horse theft or mule theft, I guess I should say. Within minutes, three cavalry companies headed out after the Nez Perce. Some of the people had anticipated and answered with an ambush. The warriors set up a sort of rear guard, kept the soldiers at bay while the others made away with the mules. And this battle really didn't amount to much more than both sides just sniping at each other. But the U.S. Army were on the losing side again. Two soldiers were killed and six wounded, while only a couple of Nez Perce were merely grazed by bullets. The next day, Howard would get about 260 infantry reinforcements, as well as 50 Bannock warriors, whom the Army promised all the Nez Perce ponies they could capture. However, the Bannock didn't stick around long. They felt like the army was too slow for their taste, so they just went on back home. As for the Nez Perce, they continued west into present-day Wyoming and ventured into a little place you may have heard of called Yellowstone National Park. Yes, believe it or not, Yellowstone was already a national park during the time of Nez Perce's war. And what's more, there were tourists there, just camping and enjoying the sights, unaware of the fact that some 200 or so pissed-off warriors were headed their way. Alright, so I'm going to kind of rush through the next two weeks or so that the Nez Perce took to cross through Yellowstone, just because for the most part, they were kind of just playing cat and mouse with the army. However, we can't forget about the tourists. The people encountered around 25 vacationers there in the park, some more than once, and at least two of them were killed by Nez Perce warriors. Others were taken captive. In one such incident, some campers taken prisoner, quested to see Chief Joseph surprising the warriors who had just apprehended them, and probably saving their lives. Joseph? The hell you want to see Joseph for? Joseph, the guy who takes care of stuff back at camp, that Joseph? Once again, news of the Nez Perce had preceded the tribe, thanks to fast-moving couriers, telegraph lines, and newspapermen. Even there in Yellowstone National Park, these tourists thought, just like everybody else in the world, that Chief Joseph was the numero uno hombre in charge. Now in this case, these civilians were taken to see Joseph, And of course, he immediately took them in and tried to make them as comfortable as possible, because the man was the gentleman. He even gave the woman a Nez Perce baby to hold, thinking that maybe calm her down. That night, they slept with Joseph's family near the fire, covered in blankets provided by Joseph. I love that Joseph gave a baby to a woman just to shut her up. I gotta try to remember that next time some female's yapping in my ear. Anyway, once the young warriors were distracted, both Joseph and Poker Joe helped these poor tourists slip out of camp asking them to tell their fellow white folk that the Nez Perce wanted no more fighting, only peace. By September 8th, the tribe had already made it through Yellowstone and camped at Clarks Fork Canyon, just shy of the Montana border. And this also happened to be Crow Country, same crow that the Nez Perce were counting on to take them in or help them out. Remember, for a minute there, the people thought that once they made it to this part of the country, they'd be alright, they could rest and resume their way of living. But, just like the flathead to the north, the Crow were not interested in harboring the Nez Perce. What's more, the Crow were now working with the U.S. Army trying to track them down. What the hell, bro? The Crow were at least friendly enough to promise that if it came down to a battle, they'd make sure they shot over the Nez Perce heads. Gotta think all the people were pretty frustrated at this point. They'd been on the move for like two months now, been engaged in numerous battles, lost way too many of their loved ones. And just when they were counting on some much-needed help and some rest, their hopes were dashed. More councils were held, and it was finally decided that they would push on north into Canada, the old woman's country. They knew Sitting Bull was up there, but he was Lakota, and you know how they be. be. Uh, no, the Nez Perce had recently gone to war against the Lakota, though, on behalf of their supposed friends, the Crow. So they thought they might still harbor some ill will. But then again, there is that old saying, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Maybe old Bull recognized the Nez Perce as fellow compatriots. And hell, it really was the only chance they had at this point. So, Canada, it was. Old Looking Glass still kind of pissed off about being voted down as the head man in charge, continued to speak out about the grueling pace, though. He said that all this traveling long miles too quickly was going to cost the Nez Perce more lives than were worth losing. Poker Joe just would not relent. He kept driving hard, arguing that it was better for some of the people to die than for all of them to die. Besides, they did need to get the hell out of crow country. Although the crow might not outright attack them, they were notorious for their horse-stealing abilities. The longer the Nez Perce tarried, the more their horses would continue disappearing every night. And of course, the young warriors, the bad boys, as other Nez Perce were calling them, kept on killing. They caught up with one miner and drove the man's own pickaxe through his neck. These guys weren't playing, but their actions sure as hell weren't helping the cause. And Joseph finally spoke up, saying as much. He also joined Lookingglass and complained about the pace, saying that the people were dying due to the fast marching just as often as they were dying to the soldiers' bullets. And there was a lot of truth in what he was saying. Some of these older Nez Perce just flat out could not keep up with the pace. They were left with blankets for comfort as their loved ones pressed on, the death songs of their grandparents ringing in their ears. Still, they continued to move, and by September 12, 1877, they were in present-day Montana, crossing that Yellowstone River. Okay, so you still got General Howard, who at this point was around where Belfry, Montana is located, so he and his troops are very close. Then you had Colonel Sturgis, with a force of about 500 soldiers and civilians, coming hot and heavy from the south. And finally, there was Colonel Nelson Miles up at Fort Keogh, and he and his men were coming down from the north, hoping to intercept the Nez Perce. It would be Sturgis, who finally caught up with the people first, though, west of present day Billings, Montana, at a place called Canyon Creek. Even had him some crow scouts along for help. Now over there at Canyon Creek, there's, from at least what I understand, a bunch of high cliffs. You follow the creek upstream, and everything's all nice and out in the open, but about five miles from the Yellowstone River, the cliffs close in on both sides, and the creek splits off into like three forks, each one running through a canyon only a few hundred feet wide, with smaller side canyons splitting off from them. These canyons are separated by a steep-ass ridge that's several hundred feet high. All total, the narrow canyons are about six miles long and lead to an open prairie on the other side. Now, keep in mind that I've never been to this area, so I can only go off of what I've read. But if that's an accurate description, then it sounds to me like a damn tactical nightmare. And it is into this labyrinth that Sturgis attempted to lead his men, just as the Nez Perce were retreating into the narrow canyons. And I say attempt because these canyons, as crazy as they were, allowed for one lone Nez Perce warrior to hold off all of Sturgis's command for an entire 10 minutes as the people made good their retreat. One dude, one rifle, held off 500. Never underestimate the high ground, I reckon. Long story short, the army and the crow got in close enough to make off with some Nez Perce horses, but that's about it. There was some fighting, with about four deaths occurring on both sides, but it wasn't too long before the people were out of the canyon and onto the open plains, once again headed north. Sturgis and his men would follow, but after about 40 miles, they were worried they'd ruin their horses, so they halted the pursuit, opting to rest and wait for a re-up of supplies from General Howard. And that right there tells you all you need to know about the grueling pace the Nez Perce were setting. And remember, we're not just talking about a group of warriors. They had their old, their young, their wives, and their wounded. Pregnant women. In the case of Chief Joseph, an infant child. And he also had a 12-year-old daughter with him as well. These people were moving so quickly that the army worried that they'd kill their horses. But they attempted to catch up. It's amazing. Alright, moving on. It would take another six days for General Howard to link up with Colonel Sturgis there on the Musselshell River, where he stopped. By then, the Nez Perce were almost to the Great Missouri River. An obstacle that they would have to cross before continuing on to Canada. And just a quick note. If it sounds like I'm kind of on the side of the Nez Perce here, it's because I am. I couldn't help but root for them. It's like watching a football game from a long time ago and you already know how it ends, but it's so close you're still rooting for your team. At the same time, however, I don't want to trivialize all those dead civilians that the Nez Perce were leaving behind. You know, as the people traveled through Montana, they did continue to raid. On September 13th, a small group of warriors shot two men enjoying their evening dinner, killed them, and then burned their cabin down. Another group struck the newly established town of Colson, Montana, burning down more homes and stealing horses. Livery Johnson, by the way, was one of the first lawmen there in uh, Colson, Montana. Anyway, so it's not like all these Nez Perce were just innocent creatures being unjustly persecuted for no reason. The army really had no choice but to pursue them. You know, they had a whole bunch of innocent people out there they had to protect. Yes, this entire war could have and should have been avoided, for sure. But you know how it is, man. Once those wheels start turning, they're hard to stop. So while I am very sympathetic to the Nez Perce cause, and even understand how those angry young warriors began to view all white people as the enemy, it still doesn't change the fact that a lot of these killings were unjustified. As I've touched on more than once, these were mostly the young bucks out there doing those raids. And a lot of the time, they were liquored up to the gills, and the people they were harming had not done them nor their families any harm. They were just guilty by association. You know, in the same way the most white people at the time lumped all the natives together as one people. Alright, by September 23rd, the Nez Perce had finally reached the Missouri River. Now, in addition to being the longest river in North America, the Missouri was also utilized as one hell of a highway. Even up there in Montana. Flat boats and steamboats constantly plied its waters, hauling both passengers and goods. And when the Nez Perce showed up, the army was waiting. Just not for them. But here's the dealio. The Missouri River gets a little shallow in parts during certain times of the year. As such, the boats, on occasion, will offload goods that they can retrieve at a later date. One such offload point was known as Cow Island. And it was right where the Nez Perce decided to cross. Just so happened that some soldiers, 12 total, happened to be on the island protecting some of these goods that were left behind. Upon spying these blue coats, the Nez Perce decided to try to avoid any fighting, and opted instead to send out about 40 warriors to stand between the soldiers and the people as they made their way across the river. Still, though, those supplies that the soldiers were guarding looked mighty tempting, goods that the Nez Perce desperately needed for the rest of their journey. Finally, once all the people were safely across the Missouri, some of the chiefs headed on over to the island to request some of these supplies. Soldiers laying in trenches, rifles at the ready, watched as their sergeant, a guy by the name of William Mulchert, went out to meet him. The sergeant graciously accepted the friendship that the Nez Perce offered, while at the same time requesting that they not come any closer to he and his men. During the tense meeting that followed, the Nez Perce insisted they didn't want no trouble, just needed a few supplies to see them and their families across the border into the old woman's country. Sergeant wouldn't budge, though, said these goods were not his to give away. When the chiefs offered gold in exchange, he continued to refuse. They belong to someone else, he explained. They ain't mine to sell. Gotta admire this man's integrity and his courage. I think most people, myself included, would just give the Nez Perce the whole damn pile as long as they just leave me alone. And I do kind of wonder where you draw that line as a leader. You know, do you give the natives what they want to spare your men's lives? Or do you sacrifice your men for the sake of some dry goods? I don't know. I do know that the sergeant finally agreed to hand over one bag of hardtack and one bag of bacon, a compromise that he probably didn't realize was more of an insult than anything else. Two bags of food ain't going to feed no several hundred people. In the eyes of the Nez Perce, why not give them more? You know, you clearly got enough. Those goods were stacked as high as a damn house. All right, fine. The Nez Perce decided they'd just take what they needed from these stingy white people. At least that's how they viewed them. So, both sides prepared for a battle and soon enough shots were being fired. But it was a long distance affair. The Nez Perce just shoot at the soldiers to keep them occupied till nightfall while their women ran up to the rear of that pile of goods and took what they could. Flour, rice, sugar, coffee, hardtack beans, pots, pans, stuff like that. Finally, once they had all they could carry, the warriors set the remainder of the goods on fire as the people had themselves a nice little feast. That evening, the Nez Perce stumbled upon a bull train. Thirteen ox-drawn wagons full of even more goods. And the same scenario played out again. Poker Joe expressed friendship and attempted to obtain said goods via diplomacy. And a little bit of trickery. He told a fib and claimed to have just seen a large war party of Lakota nearby. Told the civilians in charge of the wagon train that it might just be in their best interest to abandon the supplies temporarily. You know, so nothing bad happens. Which they very smartly did. However, right about the time that the young warriors were ransacking the wagons and pilfering themselves a nice little supply of whiskey, word spread that soldiers were approaching from the direction of the river. Now, these soldiers were actually civilian volunteers, led by a Major Guido Ilges, a post commander at Fort Benton. He heard tell that the Nez Perce were in the area and came riding hell for leather in order to protect the goods in and around Cow Island, goods meant for his fort. But ain't no force of 36 civilians gonna stop hundreds of Nez Perce. I love that this guy's name is Guido, by the way. Reminds me of the Sopranos and makes me wonder where all the gabagool is. Now, Guido and his men did exchange gunfire with the Nez Perce and one of his civilians, along with one of the teamsters from the bull train, were killed. No word on any Nez Perce deaths. The people continued their march north, nothing but the vast expanse of the northern plains between them and Sitting Bull and sweet, sweet freedom. And although they were tired, they were feeling good didn't take too much to stop those soldiers back to the canyons, and they were easily able to take what they wanted from the others they encountered there on the Missouri. Even their old friends, now enemies, I guess the Crow, had stopped pursuing and traveled back to their own country. The biggest threat now, or so they thought, was the rapidly approaching winter. Old Poker Joe knew better, though. He was well aware that the army hadn't just given up, that they were back there, somewhere. And as long as the people were on U.S. soil, they'd keep coming. So he continued to press his fellow Nez Perce hard, not slowing down his hurried pace. And they, for the most part, were over it. They just could not with him anymore. Thanks to Cow Island and those wagons, they were well supplied. And like I said, they could damn near smell Canada from where they were. Was there any reason to keep pushing so hard at the expense of more lives? Why not slow down, enjoy their spoils, start building the strength they need for a long winter? Looking glass, you know, kind of sensing that Joe was losing his grasp over the people, spoke up again. Said Howard was far, far behind with weak horses and sides. Canada was just a few days away. They all needed to slow down and take a chill pill if the old people and those still recovering from their wounds were to have a better chance. The horses needed time to graze along the way as well, and the men needed time to hunt for buffalo. Okay, Joe? Now, poker Joe countered that no, now is not the dang time to slow the pace. Haven't you noticed how the soldiers just always seem to show up unexpectedly from unexpected directions? You think the white men are just going to let us steal their goods and burn their wagons and just be like, oh, okay. Of course not. But Looking Glass would not listen. Seems he had an answer for everything. And sure enough, he won the people over. Leadership was given back to him and Poker Joe, accepting this, had the final word, saying that by slowing down, the army would catch them and would kill them. And despite this cryptic prediction, the Nez Perce did move ahead at a much less hurried pace hunting as they went, feasting off their newly acquired supplies, just trying to get as much rest as they could. And just like before, back at Big Hole, this was a tragic mistake. General Howard was behind them, yeah, but what they didn't know was that Colonel Nelson Miles was flanking them to the west with a force of over 500 soldiers, including about 30 or so Cheyenne and Sioux scouts. Scouts who had themselves fought the army just a year earlier at the Battle of Little Bighorn. And unlike Howard's men, the command under Miles hadn't been on a damn forced march all over hell and back for the past several months. These guys were well-rested, well-fed, and ready to fight. On September 29th, the skies dropped several inches of snow there on the northern plains as the Nez Perce camped on Snake Creek, just 42 miles shy of the Canadian border, not knowing that their journey would be cut short the next morning. According to author Kent Nurburn, Joseph and his 12-year-old daughter were walking among the horses when the soldiers struck that morning, giving the Nez Perce very little warning. Immediately, Joseph began shouting orders, instructing the warriors to protect the herd, not to let the soldiers scatter them. He then threw a rope to his daughter, telling her to catch a horse and ride like hell for Canada. Go! He watched her ride away, alone, into the distance, probably scared to death about what would happen to her if the soldiers or them Cheyenne caught up with her. He then caught himself in his purse pony and raced through the hell of bullets, some tugging at his clothes as he rode, crouched low, till he finally made it to the shelter where his wife was hiding with her baby. She was waiting on her husband and handed him his rifle and shouted, Here is your rifle! Go and fight! As she crawled back inside. And that's just what Joseph damn did. Alongside his brother, the warrior Olakot. The time for talking was over. This was a fight to the death to protect his loved ones. And you can bet your ass Joseph was fighting with all that he had in him. And the fighting was awfully fierce. The attack started around 9.15 that morning, and by 3 that afternoon, the Nez Perce completely surrounded, and now without their prized horses, were still fending off the soldiers, paying a heavy toll doing so. By the time the sun sank beyond the horizon that evening, Joseph's brother Alicot was dead. So was Poker Joe, and so was the always defiant Tuhuhuzol, and nearly 20 others. The army wasn't doing much better. By nightfall, they suffered 34 dead and nearly as many wounded, and they still hadn't taken the field. Their enemy was out there still fighting. What could have been a victory was now just a siege. It's worth noting that not all of the Nez Perce were in camp when the soldiers attacked. Some of them had been out hunting and others just took off like Joseph's daughter when the fighting first started. Those who remained dug in. Men, women, and children chipping away at the frozen ground with knives or pots and pans or bayonets. Whatever they had. Others pulled possessions down a narrow ravine they were using for a shelter. While others still snuck onto the battlefield, tending to their wounded and collected ammunition from dead soldiers. And once again, the Nez Perce showed mercy. Some of the soldiers whose ammunition the women were taking from the battlefield were still alive. And, you know, assuming they were going to get tortured, they were surprised when they were comforted instead. One young soldier crying out that he was thirsty was given water by a Nez Perce lady. Once he drank his fill, she placed a blanket under his head before moving on. By the way, the situation... Was not without hope as far as the Nez Perce was concerned. They kind of had it in their heads that Sitting Bull would be coming to their aid. He could come down from Canada with his Lakota, and together they and the Nez Perce could give the army a real game. As we now know, this help would never come. I did want to mention it though, you know. At one point they really got their hopes up thinking they, they saw some Nine Warriors in the distance, but it was just Buffalo. Now, I'm not entirely too sure about the fighting that may or may not have taken place that next morning. I don't think there was any type of charge done by the military. You know, it appears that the Nez purse were just too well dug in, and the Army brass knew it. There was some sniping back and forth, though, and them Cheyenne and Sioux scouts weren't too awfully afraid to sneak in close to try to raise some hair. At one point, old looking glass stood up a little too high in his rifle pit, trying for a better view, and caught a bullet through his forehead, dead before he hit the ground. And by my tally, that left Joseph and Whitebird as the last of the chiefs still alive. And by noon, Colonel Miles sent word across the line that he wanted to speak with Joseph. This message, by the way, was delivered by those Cheyenne scouts who urged, through sign language, that the Nez Perce seriously consider this offer to surrender. And once again, someone wants to speak with Joseph. And not everybody was happy with this, especially White Bird, who was 110% against surrendering. What's more, he didn't want Joseph going to talk to the army either said he didn't think Joe had the courage to refuse a surrender offer and that he knew that his heart hadn't been in this fight the whole damn journey. He even questioned whether or not the soldiers wanted to talk to Joseph because they just thought he was weak. Undaunted, Joseph said he would go and talk to Colonel Miles. He'd make no decisions, just kind of listen and report back. And if nothing else, he could get a better idea of their numbers, the kind of condition they were in after the previous day's violence. Finally, the decision was made. No more Mickey Mousing around. Joseph would meet Miles and hear the man out. And then Miles went and did something pretty stupid. He arrested Joseph. I guess since Joseph, true to his word, wouldn't agree to a surrender, Colonel Miles figured he'd just take him hostage and force the Nez Perce hand. What the Colonel didn't take into account was that two could play at this game. The Nez Perce had a hostage of their own, a young Lieutenant Jerome who stupidly stumbled into their camp all by his lonesome. More on him later. But the next day on October 2nd, both sides did exchange prisoners. Joseph was once again among the people. That's also the day that a military supply train arrived carrying a 12-pound cannon. And they did put it to use, killing a woman and a young child when a shell hit their pit they were hiding in. These two innocents do appear to be the final tragic casualties of the war. At least the final lives taken in combat. There would be many, many more deaths in the years to come, unfortunately. On October 4th, General Howard showed up, and on October 5th, 1877, Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce surrendered. Kind of, sort of. And I offer that disclaimer for several reasons. First of all, I don't think Joseph considered it a surrender. It was more of a mutual agreement between him, Howard, and Miles for the fighting to stop. It's one of the type of situations where Joseph just laid down his rifle and fell on the mercy of the U.S. military. There were negotiations and he needed several assurances. First of all, he wanted their word that he and the other fighting men wouldn't be executed. Second, he wanted the whole tribe to be returned to their homeland. If not in Oregon, then at very least to that reservation in Idaho, the one that they were moving to when all these hostilities broke out. Also, he wanted the people to be compensated monetarily for the lands that had already been taken from them. No, to Joseph this was not a surrender. He was cutting a deal. All these negotiations, by the way, were done with the help of two treaty Nez Perce that Howard had brought along, as well as Ad Chapman. You may remember me mentioning him earlier. He was the guy that fired that first shot way back in Whitebird Canyon, three and a half months prior. He was a known scoundrel who mistreated Nez Perce back in the day, but he was fluent in their language. And this is also when Joseph gave his famous speech. You know the one, and yeah, I'm gonna recite it, so let's get it out of the way. Here we go. I am tired of fighting. Our chiefs are killed. Looking Glass is dead. De old is dead. The old men are all dead. It is the young men who say yes or no. He who led the young men is dead. It is cold, and we have no blankets. The little children are freezing to death. My people, some of them, have run away to the hills and have no blankets, no food. No one knows where they are, perhaps freezing to death. I want to have time to look for my children, see how many of them I can find. Maybe I shall find them among the dead. Hear me, my chiefs. I am tired. My heart is sick and sad. From Where the sun now stands, I will fight no more forever. I've read these words many times throughout my life. I remember first reading them as a young kid back in school powerful words. they the words of a great orator. There's also a very good chance that Joseph never uttered these words. Now, obviously, he was speaking through interpreters. There's always going to be a little bit something lost through the translation. And then there's the guy who transcribed this speech, uh, Lieutenant Charles Wood, who was not even present when these words were supposedly spoken. He did, however, claim to listen to the interpreters relay the words to General Howard. Now, the West Point graduate Wood was Howard's aide de camp, And I'll be honest, man, I don't know if this guy made up that speech or not. I'm sure it probably was embellished somewhat that he gave it a little bit of poetic flair. But I'm also pretty sure that the gist was about the same. Joseph was tired of fighting and he did want to go look for his people to make sure they were okay. He was sick with grief and wanted the fighting to be done with before there was any more loss of life. As far as I'm concerned, that speech sounds pretty consistent with everything else that we know about Joseph. And you know what? The dude was no dummy, not by a long shot. He was intelligent, thoughtful, measured. Maybe he did recite that great speech word for word. And if it's not word for word, who cares? Guess what? Jesus didn't speak the Queen's English either. No matter what thou mightest have heardeth. Okay, so back to the story. Now, old Chief Joseph still had one more trick up his sleeve. He put off surrendering just long enough to give Whitebird and any other Nez purse who wanted to a chance to escape to Canada. An opportunity that a whole bunch of them took advantage of. Others, not wanting to surrender but too injured to travel, Joseph helped to conceal, hoping that the soldiers wouldn't find them. So when the people formally surrendered to General Howard, there were only 87 men, 184 women, and 147 children—just a tad over half of the amount that began the flight months earlier. The rest having either died in battle or due to the rigors of the hard traveling, or escaped up there to Canada. By the way, I forgot. I did say I was going to mention Lieutenant Jerome again, the soldier taken captive by the Nez Perce. Not only was he not harmed, but he was kept comfortable. Given a warm buffalo blanket, and even permitted to keep his revolver. Hell, the Nez Perce warriors even made small talk with the man, saying that if the weather didn't improve, they'd have to go back to fighting just to stay warm. And he wasn't the only soldier during this battle that was treated well by the so-called enemy. We touched on that briefly a few minutes ago. More than one soldier was comforted by Nez Perce women as they lay injured on the battlefield, begging for water. Don't worry, we don't want your hair, only your weapons, one lady told a young recruit that she was taking ammunition from the dead. Another comforted a wounded soldier, saying, poor boy, just too young to die. Once again, Nez Perce showing mercy, mercy that was not extended to them during this war, nor after. And there wasn't even any body mutilation of the sort that was common during other Indian fights. You know, matter of fact, the only scalp taken in this entire battle was done by a U.S. soldier who won a trophy. Look, I know that the truth is often hard to come by when it comes to history, and the facts that we think we know ain't necessarily always the most accurate. But from every angle I can see, it's very, very hard not to look at the Nez purse without a feeling of admiration and sorrow. You know, they were so close to getting to Canada, man, just 40 miles away. All right, so... The military, with the Nez Perce in tow, marched 265 miles to Fort Keogh, where they would stay about a week before the men, at least those who were able-bodied enough, were marched to Fort Buford, in present-day North Dakota. The women, children, and those two wounded to march were sent via Mackinac boats. About a week after that, they were all sent further downriver to the bustling community of Bismarck. Well, actually, uh, more accurately, Fort Abraham Lincoln, but the good folks of neighboring Bismarck welcomed the Nez Perce to open arms throwing both them and the soldiers a lavish feast of sorts. Speaking of Bismarck, R.I.P. to the great Bismarck Key. Hope you finally got what you need, baby. All right, so the Nez Perce at this point didn't want to go any further. They could immediately go home. They figured they'd just stay there in Bismarck. That was not to be, though. On November 23rd, 1877, they and all of their possessions were loaded onto a freight train bound for Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, where they would spend the winter. That next summer of 1878, they were exiled to a place that they called the Hot Place, Quapaw, Indian Territory, present-day Oklahoma. And this would be their home for the next eight years. And for many of them, unfortunately, their eternal earthly resting place. Once there, they were just ravaged by the climate, disease, and mistreatment. You name it. the Whooping cough, malaria, tuberculosis, influenza, poor diet, and bad rations, left to fend for themselves with no shelter. Speaking of their time down there in Oklahoma, one as purse would say, quote, climate killed many of us. All the newborn babies died and many of the old people, too. Everything so different from our old homes. No mountains, no springs, no clear running rivers. We call where we were the hot place all the time. Night and day we suffered from the climate for the first year. They kept us where many got the shaking sickness, chills, hot fever. We were always lonely for our old time homes. Another Nez Perce is quoted as saying, I always think of our slavery in Indian territory. I cannot forget it. Held in bondage till half of our band died in that hot, flat country. Babies and children dying. I can never put this memory from my mind. That's some heavy stuff, man. Alright, so cover your ears, because daddy's about to use some adult language here. To make matters even worse, the Nez Perce had a total piece of shit for an Indian agent. A guy by the name of H.W. Jones. Now, this crooked son of a bitch here was constantly withholding not only rations, but medicine as well. He charged the government for corn that he never delivered to the people and allowed his buddies to come on the reservation and charge them ridiculous amounts of money for supplies that they should have already been had. But rations he did give out were rotten as hell. Half-starved cattle not fit to eat and mealy flour. And the whole damn time he was getting fat on the kickbacks and bribes. He even built himself a fancy home with all that money. What does it profit a man to gain the world, but lose his soul? I will never understand people whose only motivation in life is to make that dollar, and they will kill their own mother just to make it. Remember Ad Chapman, that old scoundrel I was telling you about that fired the first shot and then went on to work as an interpreter at the Battle of Bear Paw? Well, he had sort of attached himself to the Nez Perce thereafter. I think he was figuring that he had found himself a cushy government job. But then a funny thing happened he seems to have developed a conscience, a sympathy for the people that he never had back in the old days. We're talking about a guy that used to beat Nez Perce's children and steal their horses. Upon seeing how badly they were being treated out in Oklahoma, he would soon become their advocate. Started a letter-writing campaign against that damn Agent Jones, once writing, quote, I have never heard so much suffering among the same number of people in all my life. Nothing to eat but beans and bread. Mothers dying, leaving children six and eight months old to be taken care of, and no milk or anything else to feed them on. quote. He even traveled to Washington, D.C. to lobby on behalf of the Nez Perce. Spoke of the cruel, unmitigated neglect and how they were left to die like sheep with the rot. Hell, even Chief Joseph got to trust Ned Chapman. And Chief Joseph himself was also given a chance to travel to D.C. Finally, in May of 1879, I think, check that year for me, Finally, Agent Jones was removed from his post, in disgrace. Good riddance. Nez Perce were even given a better piece of land, even if it was still in Oklahoma. On June 6, 1879, 370 Nez Perce set out in wagons for the Oakland Reservation, west of the Chickasaw River, north of the Salt Fork of the Arkansas, where the present-day hamlet of Tonkawa now stands. And yes, you did hear me correctly, 370 Nez Perce. That's all that remained of over 400 who surrendered up there in Montana. Now, although this new land was much better, had plenty of grazing land and fresh water, there are still a lot of Nez Perce dying from sickness. Also, the Christian teachings were finally beginning to take hold, and with it the realization, or the forced realization, I should say, that they needed to till the ground to survive, plow the fields like the white man. And eventually some of them were permitted to leave and go to the reservation in Idaho. The ones that were considered refugees, you know, the orphans and widows. And for those remaining in Oklahoma, things weren't a total loss. Joseph still remained a respected leader and he was still acting on behalf of his people. He remained true to the old religion, the tradition of the seven drums, holding ceremonies on Sundays while others attended church. He also worked to rebuild the tribe's horse herds with a little bit of cunning. Alright, so check this out. Other tribes were holding Sundance ceremonies all over Indian territory and among many of them, They had this tradition that if a visitor came and paid his respects, that you had to give them some horses as a gift. Well, Joseph made it a point to pay his respects over and over and over again, thus receiving plenty of horses. Pretty neat trick, if you ask me. And of course, these horses were expertly bred in the Nez Perce way. Chief Joseph also began leasing land to white ranchers for them to run their cattle on, kind of like how Quanna Parker did, giving his people some much-needed income. Still, though, this wasn't home and he still hadn't given up his dream of returning all of the people back home. He kept telling his story to all who would listen, and so did Ad Chapman. Finally, in May of 1885, petitions were presented before Congress demanding action, and within two months, the removal back home was authorized. Only catch was that Joseph and his band could return neither to Idaho or Oregon. That ship done sailed. Instead, they were placed on the Colville Reservation in northern Washington State, 100 miles away. Joseph did not like this one bit. He figured they'd all been punished enough, saying, quote, If I could, I would take my heart out and hold it in my hand and let the great father and the white people see that there is nothing in it but kind feelings and love for him and them. End quote. When that train finally left the station down in Oklahoma, headed north in 1885, the sound of wailing and mourning filled the air for the over one hundred Nez purse they left behind in the ground. Joseph's young daughter, the one who had been an infant during the war among them. Only 268 survived to make the journey back up there to the Columbia Plateau. Once in Washington State, Joseph continued to petition for his people. Not only did he want money for their old lands, but he argued successfully that they were owed this money by law. And he was right. And of course, just like always, he still held out hope that they could return to the Wallowa Valley, making even more trips to D.C. to plead his case. He even traveled all the way to New York City, 1897, for a grand parade in dedication to Grant's tomb. And while he was there, he visited Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Also in attendance that day were General Howard and the now General Miles, Joseph's old enemies. Two military men paid their respects along with Buffalo Bill himself, and the crowd went wild. Gotta wonder what Joseph thought, though, man, watching the Wild West show and all them people play and pretend. Now, Miles did take up Joseph's case, somewhat and arranged yet another visit, D.C., in 1889. Still, it'd be another 11 years before he and a few others were permitted to return to the homeland, Oregon, in June of 1900, and then only temporarily. While there, Joseph got to visit the graves of his parents, kept in good repair by a kindly settler who fenced the burial site in. And there, at their gravesite, Joseph openly wept. He then spoke before a group in the town of Enterprise, Oregon, taking his case to the locals. They didn't like it, though. Hell, some of them were against just allowing him to make a speech. Not only were he and the Nez Perce not welcome to return to the valley, but the locals wouldn't even be interested in selling them their former land at a fair market price. Finally, Indian Inspector James McLaughlin sent in the final report on the matter, saying that the white man had turned a desert into a garden, referring to the Wallowa Valley, and that they should enjoy the profit of their enterprise. In short, he figured that Joseph was just better off living out the rest of his days there in Colville. And although things weren't quite as bad there in Washington State as they were in Oklahoma, people still weren't being treated well. Damn Indian agent hated them, called the Nez Perce blanket Indians with no religion, who believed in no creed, and whose morality was low. Matter of fact, this asshat advocated getting rid of all government assistance so that they'd be forced to take up farming. Sorry ass son of a bitch. Didn't help matters much that Joseph still refused to live inside of a house, preferring his teepee instead. He also continued to wear his leggings and moccasins, and the tribe continued to treat him as a chief, consulting with them even when it came to trivial matters, which only infuriated the Indian agent. In 1903, Joseph visited D.C. again. Seems the gold was discovered up in Colville and the entire top half of the reservation taken from the natives. No surprise there, right? The southern half, where Joseph and his remaining band lived, was being encroached on by prospectors as well. Even those Indian agents were spending their leisure time painting for gold on native land. So Joseph met with President Roosevelt, who unfortunately never cared enough to investigate matters much. Perhaps it slipped his mind, or perhaps he hadn't changed his opinion from that time he was quoted as saying, I don't go so far as to think that only good Indians are dead Indians, but I believe nine out of every ten are, and I shouldn't like to inquire too closely into the case of the tenth. On Joseph's return home, he stopped at the Carlisle School for Indians and had dinner with General Howard and gave another speech, saying, quote, Ever since the war, I have made up my mind to be friendly to the whites and to everybody. I have lost many friends and many men and women and children, but I have no grievance against any of the white people, General Howard or anyone. He also said that the Indians should learn the white man's ways so that they could do business with him, but they should also be allowed to keep their own ways and live as they pleased. I want to be friends with everybody, he said. These years were hard on Chief Joseph. His health began to decline, and he'd spend long hours just sitting outside of his teepee, staring at a picture of his one child who remained living. Noise of running feet, now going by the name of Sarah Moses. She was living down on the reservation in a laugh way, and Joseph hadn't seen her since he put her on that horse all those years earlier, telling her to ride for Canada. Sometimes he wouldn't speak much to anybody, other than to say he was just feeling tired. Plump tuckered out. Finally, on September 21st, 1904, he called out to his wife as he lay in his teepee, asking her to go fetch his headdress. He kept it in a wooden shed along with his rifle. Said he might die at any moment, and he wanted his headdress so he could die as a chief. By the time she grabbed it and got back to the tent, the great chief Joseph passed away, buried shortly thereafter on the Coalville Reservation. Remember his father's grave, which it seemed so well kept when Joseph visited? Well, unfortunately, it was desecrated. Some jackass dug out the skull and put it up on display in a damn dentist's office in Baker City. As for Joseph's old homeland, the place where the whites didn't want him no more, well, they sure as hell didn't mind naming a town after him, Joseph Oregon. Gotta get all that good publicity, tourist money, I reckon. By the time Joseph died, all nine of his children were already dead, including noise running feet. Had a really hard time, by the way, finding out the names of these children, or even how many wives Joseph had. I think at one point he may have had two wives, but I'm not even sure if the wife that was with him when he died was the same lady who he was married to during the war. So if you know, please email me, share that knowledge. As far as what killed Joseph, well, it wasn't old age. I mean, he was only 64 at the time of his death. That's the same age that Mel Gibson and Tom Hanks are right now. Same age as Kim Cattrall, her old promiscuous-looking ass. Joseph had a disease for sure, although it was never diagnosed. You can probably look at all of his symptoms and come up with an educated guess. But I'll refer to the doctor there at the Colville Agency, Edwin Latham, who said, quote, Chief Joseph died of a broken heart. And that sounds about right to me. As far as Whitebird and all those others who went to Canada, well, they didn't all make it either. The army, following the surrender of Joseph, realized that a whole bunch of Nez Perce were unaccounted for. So they sent some other tribes on them, the Assiniboine and the Grovons. White Bird himself had a bounty of 25 horses and $500 on his head. Out of the 330 that tried to make it to Canada, only 233 actually made it. There was one situation where a group of 35 were taken in by a supposed friendly camp of Grovance, about 12 miles from the battlefield. They then stripped their guests of their rifles and set them out on foot. Once they got a short distance, they pursued, killing all but one who happened to hide in a ravine. Now, those who did make it, including Whitebird and Old Daytime Smoker, Captain Clark's possible son, they were taken in by Sitting Bull. One official Canadian Mounted Police count in October of 1877 numbered them at 290. According to Whitebird, it was 171. And then there's that count I just gave a moment ago that said 233. So, not sure who has the most accurate count here. The numbers, whichever you choose to believe, are heartbreaking. Especially when coupled with the numbers of those who died of disease down in Oklahoma. So much damn suffering and tragedy and needless death. All because people can't learn to live together without going at each other's damn throats. Same shit you see in the news nowadays. As you probably already know, Sittin' Bull left Canada in 1881, but the Nez Perce remained, settling in southwestern Alberta. And although Chief Whitebird was murdered in 1892, many of the people continued to remain there in Canada. Matter of fact, their descendants still reside up there in the Great White North to this day. A wonderful lady by the name of Sharon Red Thunder, who unfortunately passed away 2013, said, quote, it's something that just breaks my heart when I think of everything our people went through and how we're so scattered. We're still scattered all the way to Oklahoma, Kansas, Canada, Idaho, Oregon, Washington, Montana. We're all bonded together because of what we went through in 1877. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and leave you with one last quote from the great Chief Joseph. Treat all men alike. Give them the same law. Give them all an even chance to live and grow. For this time, the Indian people are waiting and praying. And I reckon that's about all I've got on Chief Joseph and the Nez Perce War. I want to give an extra big shout out to author Kent Nurburne, whose excellent book, Chief Joseph and the Fly of the Nez Perce, I leaned on heavily while doing research for this episode. I will link to it in this episode's show notes, as well as all the other articles and and timelines that I referenced. Remember, there's a lot of stuff out there on the Nez War, and I didn't even get close to reading all of it. I'm positive I left stuff out and probably even got a few things wrong. As always, continue to do your own research. I know for me, at least, I'm definitely interested in reading a lot more about this topic. There's so many layers to this story. And don't even get me started on this uh, alleged ancient Syrian tablet or something like that that Joseph had on him when he surrendered. And then there's the current day Nez Perce, who are still fighting for their land and their culture. All right, thanks for listening. By the way, do me a favor, if you like what you hear, and please tell somebody about this podcast, The Wild West Extravaganza. Share it with your friends and enemies alike. And wherever you're listening, subscribe, follow, whatever. It's free, and there's plenty more true tales from the Wild and Wooly West coming your way. Check out my website, wildwestextra.com and hit that contact button while you're there. Let me know what you think and keep them suggestions rolling in too. Usually I like to give a few shout outs at the end of each episode, but I think I probably rambled on enough for one day. Just know that I appreciate you all. I can't thank you enough for listening. All right, till next time. Adios.